Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 114, and I'm back thinking about travel, specifically Richard Hakalite. His story as England's first travel writer is fascinating for anyone, but especially when you add into it the fact that he actually never traveled really himself and then the long-lasting effects he had on English exploration. So this week, we're going to talk about exploration and armchair travel. But first, I have a very important announcement to make, which involves real travel, and that is TudorCon. Yes, you heard that right. I am organizing and hosting the world's first ever TudorCon. In October 2019, we will gather at a newly restored winery adjacent to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, which is incidentally where I'm from originally. Well, not Mannheim, but Lancaster County. So we're going to have three days of merriment, learning, feasting, and entertainment. The weekend will kick off on Friday, the 18th of October with a welcoming party with refreshments and period entertainment and games. Costumes are definitely encouraged for this part. On Saturday, we're going to have a full day of learning from speakers. We've already confirmed three, and there's a whole bunch who have applied and who are in the works. So there's going to be about six speakers on Saturday. And so that'll be a full day of learning. And then on Sunday morning, we reconvene for another couple of talks, three or four talks in the morning, followed by a medieval feast in the feasting grounds of the Renaissance Fair with private entertainment, and then time to spend at the fair before calling it a weekend. So the goals of the event, first and foremost, is to bring together this amazing community from around the country and the world even. We've got people already who signed up to come, who bought tickets, who are coming from England. So we're going to have a weekend of social learning, new friendships, and bonding over our shared love of Tudor history. And then second, we want to meet some of our favorite bloggers and authors and podcasters. And third, we just want to dress up and have a really good time listening to Tudor music, right? And and partying Tudor style and having this amazing weekend where we're learning and feasting and partying and learning some more and doing it all with this amazing community of people. Tickets for TudorCon are at an early bird price for the remainder of the year. They're available to buy at my shop website, tutorfair.com. 
The link is right up there in the top left. It's the first product listed, tutorfair.com. We only have 120 seats available because of the size of the space, and they will likely sell out. So I have to tell you, I announced this on Facebook, and already in the first six days, I sold 20% of the available tickets. So if you think you'd like to come, you should get your tickets early so you can reserve your spot. So again, tutorfair.com to get these highly sought after tickets. If you're on your phone right now, you can check it out while you're listening. And I cannot wait for you to come spend a weekend in October next year with me and 119 of your new best friends. And we will talk tutor all weekend long. So now let's talk about Richard Hackalite. He was born in 1553, and through his early adulthood, he watched as England stood by and let Spain and Portugal build an empire in the New World. The English Navy was considered a joke. Their primary exploration voyages thus far had landed them in Moscow by heading north and then east. And trading furs and rejecting a marriage offer from Ivan the Terrible was interesting, but it wasn't going to lead to empire. After the defeat of the Spanish Armada, though, things started looking up for England. Maybe she could head over to the Americas and found an actual long-lasting settlement. Those of you who will remember a few episodes ago when we talked about Roanoke will remember that it was happening just as the Armada was being fought, and that actually led to the holdup of supply ships getting back to the colonies. So when Elizabeth died in 1603, England still did not have one permanent settlement in the New World. English exploration was underfunded, it was unorganized, and it needed a cohesive strategy to support it and plan the voyages. In the context of these early explorations, a man by the name of Richard Hackalite began compiling travelers' stories, maps, and information about the New World. While not his first travel book, the one for which he is most remembered, has a title that the title alone deserves study. The title is, I'm not making this up, The Principal Navigations, Voyages, and Discoveries of the English Nation, made by sea or overland to the most remote and farthest distant quarters of the earth at any time within the compass of these 1500 years, divided into three several parts according to the positions of the regions whereunto they were directed, the first containing the personal travels of the English onto India, Syria, Arabia, the second, comprehending the worthy discoveries of the English towards the north and northeast by sea as of Lapland, the third and last, including the English valiant attempts in searching almost all corners of the vast and new world of America, whereunto is added the last most renowned English navigation round about the whole globe of the earth. How's that for a title? I'd love to write a book that had a title like that, wouldn't you? So this was published in 1589, Principal Navigations, is a record of the experiences and the voyages and the adventures of a group of explorers whose names are known to anyone who has studied the Age of Discovery, Frobisher and Drake and all of those people. But it isn't just a work that focuses on the famous people. And this is what makes it so cool. It actually shares the stories of people we wouldn't know, people who would be lost to us except for this book. And also his influence on travel and exploration helped to popularize it in England and helped to turn England into the dominant sea force that it would become within a 100 years. The great irony, of course, is that Hakalite never went to America. He only left England one time for France. So he was the orphaned second son of a Welsh family that had settled in Hertfordshire. His education was supported through scholarships 
And he tells a story of how he discovered geography as a very young boy when he saw a universal map on the desk of his guardian, who was also his cousin, who shared his name, Richard Hackalake, the senior. So that cousin, the older Richard Hackalake, moved geography into a biblical lesson when he spoke of Psalm 107, a verse about going down to the sea in ships and occupy by great waters. They see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. In 1570, Hackalite went to Christchurch, Oxford with financial support from the Skinner's Company. When his exercise of duty first performed, he then decided to read all of the printed or written voyages and discoveries that he could find. He got his Master of Arts in 1577, and he began giving public lectures in geography. He was the first one to show both the old, imperfectly composed, and the new, lately reformed maps, globes, and spheres, and other instruments of this art, unquote. He lectured in academic circles on maps and globes and geography in general. In 1578, he was ordained, and that year he also received a pension from the Worshipful Company of Cloth Workers to study divinity. The pension was due to lapse in 1583, but William Cecil got involved and he extended it or had it extended until 1586 so that Hackalite could continue doing geographical research. Richard Hackalite was really merging together his two great, I don't know, overwhelming themes, which is Christianity and Protestant Christianity and, and divinity and also geography. And he really saw this as a mission for himself to share all of the different stories and to stick up for England and, and England's discoveries. And uh, yeah, it was re he really saw it almost as, as a mission. So in 1582, he published his first book, Diverse Voyages Touching the Discovery of America and the Lands Adjacent Unto the Same, made first of all by our Englishmen and afterwards by the Frenchmen and Britons. Several nobles noticed him from this book, um, Lord Howard of Effingham and Sir Edward Stafford, Lord Howard's brother-in-law. He was selected as a chaplain and secretary to accompany Stafford, who then became the English ambassador at the French court. So he went to Paris in 1583. Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's spymaster, who had been in Paris himself until recently, asked him to spend his time mainly collecting information of the Spanish and French movements and, quote, making diligent inquiry of such things as might yield any light onto our Western discoveries in America, unquote. While he was in France, he overheard rumors and disparaging remarks about English seafaring capabilities. He wrote that he, quote, both heard in speech and read in books other nations miraculously extolled for their discoveries and notable enterprises by sea. But the English, of all others, for their sluggish security and continual neglect of the like attempts, either ignominiously reported or exceedingly condemned. And so he began his work on principal navigations. In the world of travel writing, there wasn't a lot of precedent to go on. There were works by the German cosmographer Sebastian Münster, he wrote the Cosmographia in 1544. It was the earliest German language description of the world. It was actually one of the most successful and popular works of the 16th century. It went through 24 editions in 100 years. And part of its success was down to the woodcuts. 
It reminds me of Fox's Book of Martyrs and those woodcuts and how the woodcuts made such a difference for the success of that book. And Sebastian Munster, also his Cosmographia, had these woodcuts that were fascinating for people. And in fact, Hans Holbein himself worked on some of those woodcuts. He also was uh, the first to introduce separate maps for each of the four continents known then, America, Africa, Asia, and Europe. So Munster certainly was a precedent that he could follow, but Hakalai didn't want to follow this model. He thought it was boring, very weary. It didn't really bring the stories to life the way he wanted to. So then there was people like the Englishman Richard Eden, Richard Eden died in 1576. He was very prolific in the kind of mid 16th century, translating the writings of other cosmographers, including Munster. He's the one who brought the work of Sebastian Munster to England. So, but what, what Hakalite wanted to do was he wanted to focus on the writings and descriptions that were firsthand written by the sailors and the captains and the merchants themselves. He wanted to focus on private letters and records that were circulating around in in homes and in companies and in different places. But he wanted to capture these and preserve them for posterity, but also use them to share the experience of what travel was like. He made it very clear in the introduction that he's preserving others' words and not his own. He says, whatsoever testimony I have found in any author of authority appertaining to my argument, either stranger or natural, I have recorded the same word for word with his particular name and page of the book where it is extant. And we tend to focus on Hakalite and the way he drove colonization of America and the way he believed in the British Empire and, and in the sort of manifest destiny of England going to America. It's worth noting that he doesn't just focus on America. So in his book, we find stories like uh, Thomas Stevens' letter to his father. Stevens was an English Catholic. He became a Jesuit priest after he went to Rome. And then in 1579, he became the first Englishman to reach Goa. And he described this passage around the Cape of Good Hope. He says, their gums wax great and swell, and they are fain to cut them away. Their legs swell, and all the bodies becometh sore and so benumbed that they cannot stir hand nor foot. And so they die of weakness, others fall into fluxes and agues and die thereby. So I'm not sure how compelling that would be to have me go around the Cape of Good Hope. But you know, it's, it's a great narrative. We also get stories of wonders, like Dionysi Settle's first person account of Frobisher's 1577 voyage to northeastern Canada. And Hakalite himself would actually travel around to talk and interview some of these survivors and, and people who were on these voyages. He would seek out the crew members and interview them. And so we get this story that talked about seeing icebergs and also a dead narwhal, uh, a whale whose single tusk of the length of two yards lacking two inches made the sailors believe that they had seen a sea unicorn. So these these wonders that people were seeing for the first time, Hakalite would travel or he would read their letters, and then he would travel and interview them and, and really capture these stories. There's also the kind of minutia and, and mundane aspects of travelers that we could even relate to now, the, the tedium of having your hopes built up about a particular place, only to realize that it really wasn't as great as you heard it would be. 
And the journey to get there was awful. So there was a guy called Stephen Parmenius, and he wrote a letter to Hacolyte in August of 1583. He talks of his disappointment when he arrived at St. John's Harbor. He was a crew member of Sir Humphrey Gilbert's voyage to Newfoundland. And he writes, the trees for the most part are pines and all the grass here is long and tall and little different from ours. He hadn't spotted a single mermaid, even though everyone said that the harbor would be full of them. Clearly, the Yelp reviews were wrong. Imagine traveling to see the most perfect waterfall or something like that and showing up and it was barely a trickle. That's how Stephen Parmenius felt. So when they had stocked up on supplies, quote, in this place, which certainly doesn't make it sound that appealing, we're going to stock up on supplies in this place. He hoped that we propose by the help of God to pass towards the south to greater things that are reported of those countries, which we go to discover. Sadly, by the time Hacolyte received the letter, he would have known that Parmenius was lost at sea several weeks later after he had written the letter, along with Sir Humphrey Gilbert himself. So their journey to find the wonders at those other countries was not successful, and poor Parmenius died having not seen the promised mermaid. Two of the original five ships returned carrying the letters and the stories of the lost men, including the letter to Hacolyte. So that's how we still have it. The first edition of Voyages and Discovery was over 800 pages folio style. By 1600, the second edition was over a million and 760,000 words in three folio volumes, about 2,000 pages. His work, though, also started this whole new trend of travel writing and of sharing these stories and these discoveries. So he wasn't the only one that started doing it, then he encouraged other people to do it as well. So in an article from Public Domain Review, Nandini Das of the University of Liverpool writes, Thomas Harriet, who wrote about his influence in the brief and true report of the Newfoundland of Virginia in 1590, and John Pory, who claimed that Hacolyte was the only man who moved him to translate John Leo Africanus's History of Africa, were two of the many people who were inspired by Hacolyte and Hacolyte's writing. Hacolyte also continued tr to translate himself, and he translated the Maria Liberum, which was the freedom of the seas. It was a, a Dutch writing that argued that no nation could impose restrictions on seafaring trade since the sea did not belong to a single nation. So it was all about free trade there. And the principal navigations became one of those books that their ships were actually recommended to carry as essential reading. And Das continues that by the time of his death, Hacolyte's work and advocacy of Protestant English settlements and colonies in the New World, both in writing and as an advisor to the state and trading companies, had become the cornerstone of English colonial and imperial plans and established the legacy of English explorations in general. In the late 1590s, Hacolyte became the personal chaplain of Robert Cecil, Lord Burley's son, who would then become Hacolyte's kind of most fruitful, most important patron. Hacolyte dedicated to Cecil the second and third volumes of Principal Navigations, and also his edition of Galvalio's Discoveries in 1601. Cecil, who was the principal secretary of state to both Elizabeth I and James I, 
rewarded him by giving him the post of prebendary of the dean and chapter in Westminster. And then the following year, he was elected archdeacon of the abbey. And for years, scholars have speculated on what role Hakalite's Protestant faith played in his race to explore faster than the Catholic Spanish. So there was definitely, I think, part of a religious mission to it, like I said before. Hakalite did marry twice, once around 1594 and then again in 1604. In the license of his second marriage, the, the marriage license in 1604, he's described as one of the chaplains of the Savoy Hospital. This position was also given to him by Cecil. His last publication was a translation of Hernando de Soto's Discoveries in Florida, entitled Virginia Richly Valued by the Description of the Mainland of Florida, Her Next Neighbor, in 1609. When he died, he was then buried in Westminster Abbey, although the burial spot has been lost. So sadly, there is no grave that we could put modern globes on now. Nandini Das in that article writes, Hakalite's legacy was not just a nationalistic celebration of English imperial ambitions. The Principal Navigations memorializes not just the success of English travels, the great figures and great wonders, but also the elusive traces of those who disappeared, the disappointment of the non-event, the tedium of the travel, and the absence of wonder. Beyond the great figures of Raleigh, Frobisher, and Gilbert, beyond the pioneering circumnavigations of Drake and Cavendish, Hakalite's collection stands testimony to the ordinary traveler, to the individual experience of travel, fragile, unexpected, and so often hostage to fortune. With voices of that young Parmenius, who had hoped to write a new Latin epic, but was sunk with a ship called the Delight, Hakalite's principal navigation bears witness to the lives of hundreds of travelers, without whom the story of English travels and voyages would be much poorer. So, this week, you should definitely check out Principal Navigations. Um, it's available in the public domain. I've got links on the website. The book recommendation is called Hakalite's Promise and Elizabethan's Obsession for an English America by Peter Mancall. So I think Richard Hakalite is amazing. There's There was also um, a special on him uh, that BBC did recently that was available on iPlayer. You might be able to pull it up. I'll see if it's on YouTube um, so there's there's more information about him available now. And and he's a fascinating character, especially because he only ever went to France. You know, he wrote about all of this stuff, but he was the epitome of an armchair traveler. And, uh, and he made such a difference, such a lasting difference for Elizabethan travel and exploration. So there's links to the show notes for this episode, episode 114 at englandcast.com. Also all my sources, everything like that. That public domain review article was really good. So I pulled from that a lot. So you can check that out too. Everything is at englandcast.com. You can also get in touch with me through the listener support line. Uh, you can text 8016-TESCO or through Twitter at Tesco or facebook.com slash englandcast. And remember to get your TutorCon tickets. You don't want to miss out. This event is going to be so much fun. I've got so much cool stuff planned, you guys. It's going to be amazing. Um, 119 of your best friends, we're all going to be hanging out, talking tutor with each other, and listening to tutor music and having feasts and learning with each other. And it's going to be so much fun. So 
Plan it next October, October 18th to 20th, 2019. You can get your tickets at tutorfair.com. So thank you so much for listening. I will be back again in another two weeks. And until then, have a great couple of weeks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Blow northern wind, ascend for maybe sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoorte boord in Bauerbrieg, dat soel is semlies on sicht. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.